In this episode of the Fit for Golf podcast, I am joined by Dr. Rob Gray. Rob is an expert in skill acquisition, which is how we learn and improve at different tasks. I was delighted to have him as a guest and ask him about the science behind swing changes and how we can best set up our practice routines to make changes stick. I hope you enjoy the episode and please let me know if you have any feedback. Just before we get started, a reminder that Fit for Golf has its own app. Golfers of all ages and all standards are making huge strides in their golf performance, fitness and health. There are programs to suit everyone and there is an abundance of material whether you are working out at home or in the gym. Visit fitforgolf.blog forward slash app to find out more. You can get 20% off a 12-month subscription with the code FFGPOD. Now to Dr. Rob Gray. Dr. Rob Gray, thank you very much for joining me on the Fit for Golf podcast. How are you this morning? I'm great. Thank you. And my, my pleasure to, to join you. Yeah, no, I, I really appreciate it. As I told you just before we went on air, I've listened to your podcasts for a number of years now. Uh, just really good information about skill acquisition, how we can practice and train to get better. Really interesting insights and extremely good at breaking down kind of maybe the nitty gritty research into things that make it easy for people like me to understand. Rob, would you mind giving us a little bit of a run through of maybe your education and coaching background so the listeners can know a bit more about you? Yeah, so so I'm originally from Canada. I'm Canadian. I'm originally from Toronto area. Um, I did my all my education in psychology. So I have my PhD in psychology. Um, for many, many years, I've been doing research and writing about, you know, uh, performance in, in generally. Um, I've worked uh, with, on driving safety with certain driving companies, with the U.S. Air Force, with pilots. But my biggest love has always been sport, understanding sports performance, how to get people to learn choir skills effectively, how to deal with situations when they go bad, like choking under pressure and and things like that. So, so I've done a lot of research and written a lot. And then in the last, you know, maybe 10 years or so, I've done more uh, consulting kind of side of things. So I don't coach directly very often. I do more coach education and work with coaches. I, I found um, I'm not the best coach myself, but I'm good at helping coaches get better and, and then implement theories and giving them kind of a framework to, to build on. So that's what I do a lot. of. biggest sport I work in is baseball right now, being in Arizona, but I also do some soccer and golf, basketball, so a few other things. Fantastic. That That's really good. Um, and yeah, for anybody who was interested in really digging in, can you just tell us the name of your podcast for people who want to start following that? Yeah. So uh, my uh, the podcast I do is called the Perception and Action Podcast. I've been doing it for a long, long time. It's pretty deep in the weeds if you go to the latest episodes. So you might want to try some earlier ones. And I also wrote uh, a, a book that called How We Learn to Move, uh, which is kind of an introduction to this different approach to skill that I'm sure we're going to get into today we're talking about golf. Yeah. No, Fantastic. So, Rob, I'm going to start this off by giving a practical example of something many golfers listening to this podcast are going through and something I've gone through myself and I'm going through. They are eager to improve their ball striking, which will enable them to shoot lower scores. They see a golf instructor who assesses their swing and golf shots. The instructor gives their opinion on how the golfer can improve their ball striking. And this often includes a change in their movement pattern. Sometimes it's a very slight adjustment and sometimes it's more severe. And this is kind of when the fun and the mess starts for golfers. Mm. The process of being able to carry out this movement pattern in the first place, then being able to carry it out and execute high quality shots, and then having it become comfortable or the dream, which is it becoming automatic Mm. and showing up without really thinking about it, can be an extremely challenging process. So that was a long build-up, <laughs> but it's really trying to get to the crux of why are movement patterns so difficult to change? Yeah, so there's a few things there. So one of the things, you know, I think I'll start with is kind of I would like to reframe this a little bit. Um, so, mm-hmm. to get out. so this kind of a new approach to skill that that I, I, I kind of would is that I don't – the idea that you, you need to make one change – to, to do a swing, like a steeper path, swing path, 
And if I adopt that and I can repeat it, that's the answer to all my problems. It's kind of not consistent with what we're finding more. What we're finding more and more is this idea we call repetition without repetition. So you actually, to repeat striking the ball right down the middle of the fairway, you don't actually repeat the move, same movement every time. You're actually adjusting. So you're changing all the time, right? So this kind of idea that if I just do this one thing differently and I can repeat it over and over, um, that that's the answer to all my problems <laughs> is kind of, I think, the wrong way to think about it. I think we want to make, think about our swing as being adaptable and adjustable to the different conditions. Think about being, you know, adaptable golf shots is what we want to make. But but that's not to say right, that there aren't some, you know, problems you can have with your movement pattern that we want to move you away from. Right. Maybe there's not one that we, you know, you're, you're slicing the ball. So we want to, you know, do this differently. And to your, to your main question, you know, why is it so difficult? Uh, you know, once we kind of learn, we get, get a movement pattern well ingrained in us, it is very, very difficult sometimes to move us away. And part of the problem is the way that we're often coach, like to get you to change how you're moving, right? You need to give a, your body a reason. <laughs> right? And just telling you, you need to swing steeper. You need to kind of give it some other motivation to do, whether it's a change in the conditions, whether it's giving you a different goal. So, so I think that's part of the problem. Just a simple instruction. Um, your body, the, you know, I, um, I, Franz Bosch, who I like to work in baseball, as you say, say your, your, your body has very little interest in what the coach has to say, right? Just telling you swing steeper, you know, what does that mean? What, why you need to give it actual reason, purpose, a function to do that. So I think that that's part of it, all, all of this. So I threw a lot at you there. So hopefully I answered your question at least a little bit. No, no, for sure. Like yeah. I knew that that was a kind of very <laughs> open-ended question that could go a lot of different ways. Kind of my goal is to mm-hmm. suggest things to you and then hopefully just be able to, li- to listen <laughs> up to the expert. Um, something I I dig into there, which I think is, very interesting in golf um, and you touched on is the idea of um, how we how we change mm-hmm. each time we swing mm-hmm. like we, we never have the exact same movement and repetition without repetition and the idea that there's not one set movement pattern that we can use to to be successful all the time mm-hmm. we kind of know this like obviously golf is a sport where like very slight changes in in movement pattern and definitely very slight changes in in strike, like where the club face meets the ball, can have huge differences in shot outcome. So we see the best players in the world hit truly terrible golf shots every week mm-hmm. because the margins are, are, are so small. I think where some people kind of get confused is that the idea of, yes, there's, there's no perfect swing model, but then if we look at, say, highly skilled professional players or, you know, kind of college players. And then we look at the players we see playing in our local course every week. There's definitely almost like a bandwidth of movement that they tend to fall in. Like there, there is grades of, well, I don't care how much this person practices or, or how much skill they develop with this movement pattern. They're going to be very limited in how good they can get. And conversely, you might see other people with a movement pattern that you're like, yeah, man, that guy's not great yet. But if he starts practicing a little bit more, I can see him getting really, really good because he almost has, uh, I would say, like a gross movement pattern that has potential to be very good. Is that something you yeah, kind of sure, agree sure. with? Or Yeah, I, I think, you know, the way I like to, to say it is, you know, there's we're allowing for variation in the, in the swing, both with it or between individuals, like different golfers can do it different ways. And within an individual from one moment to the swing to the next, I might do it slightly differently. Um, but that's not to say that there's certain things that kind of have to be there. Um, you know, if you're not going to trans, if you're not shifting weight back to your back foot in, in golf and other sports that I do like baseball, you're never going to generate a powerful swing with just, your arm right we know that if you're not getting the club head square at contact no matter what you do you're not going to be able to you know consistently hit the ball you know successfully so yeah there are some kind of key points that we we need you're right that elite golfers have 
these key, I sometimes I call them invariants, things that are the same. But around that, we're allowing for, uh, you know, different elbow angles, different shoulder rotations to get there. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, which which definitely is also seen at the elite level. Mm-hmm. Like that's not hard at all. If you watch even five tour players playing, you'll see, oh yeah, they, they don't all look the same, mm-hmm. which makes perfect sense mm-hmm. based on their anthropometrics, their their limb lengths, their body shapes, where they learn to play, all these types of things. In regards to variability from swing to swing with the same player, do elite players show less variability? from swing to swing compared to lower skilled players or is it not quite that clean cut? Yeah. Um, yeah, no, it, the overall, yes. Um, they show uh, less kind of more consistent swing path compared to, a um, to a kind of a lesser skilled golfer. Um, what we do, what, what we see more though, instead of being more or less, we see sometimes we see a restructuring of the variability instead of just things being random, things are varying together, right? So, um, in a, uh, expert golfer, if, if I don't, if I take my arm back slightly slower on this swing, then I adjust for it with some other part of the movement, right? They're working together. Sometimes we call it a synergy. So things are varying together rather than just being completely random. You know, one time my club's up here, way out down there. One time it's straight up. You see that in a novice, right? They bring their own. When you're first learning, you're exploring different things and trying to think in your less consistent for sure. Yeah. So the expert player is almost more in tune with, okay, what happened on this swing? And it didn't go particularly well. On the next swing, I'm going to try something that might be an improvement on that. Yeah, a little bit of that. And then also, I think if you practice right way within the swing itself, right, your body can sense that, uh, no, I'm not rotating quickly enough through my lower body. Let's get my hands going faster, that that kind of thing. So working together, we definitely see that in, I think there's some studies in golf showing that, but also in like in baseball and other sports I work in, we see, we can actually see these, this variation working together. Yeah. Yeah. No, that makes sense. In the kind of golf world, that would often be termed matchups. Mm-hmm. So a player might do something different in their backswing or whatever, but through like obviously higher skilled players tend to have way more practice under their belt they've learned how to like very quickly oh man i need to do x to to save this shot yeah maybe maybe compensate would be another term which probably isn't the best term because it's still a way of making a perfectly successful outcome but um they're the two things you'd hear in the golf world would be matchups and almost they're good at compensating for for if something's going wrong they can they can save it with their hands or they can change something to still make the shot usable yeah yeah no i I think those you're exactly right and i guess i i would probably emphasize we kind of think those as bad things (laughs) but i think they're happening all the time right yeah that's why i didn't want to use the word yeah no no i think it's fair it's definitely i think we because we have this kind of model this of the perfect swing every time the one repeatable swing um whereas i think the we we see these compensations and variations going on all the time uh, without really knowing it sometimes. There's some really gross ones that you can see, obviously with the naked eye, but most of them are going to be much more subtle. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Something that I find very interesting in golf, I actually just wrote about it on Twitter last night, is like golf is a quite a unique sport in that there's very, very different parts of the game and different skills required to be very good at it. For example, there's not much relationship between somebody being an elite driver of the golf ball and being an elite pitcher or chipper or, you know, good at, good at short game. Now we do tend to see the best players are good at everything, but what I mean is you could get really good at one of them without ever practicing the other one. And there might be almost no transfer. And talking about this idea of variability and adaptation or the ability to adapt. I, read a a lot of you know um information from people who talk about developing skill you know repetition without repetition trying to come up with you know solutions to solve the problem that's in front of you rather than you know almost learning off 
a movement pattern and then hoping to make it fit each scenario on the golf course. Mm-hmm. And where I'm going with this is that in golf, we have key elements of the game where we see very different amounts of variation. So for example, a golfer will typically hit like 12 to 14 drivers per round, mm-hmm. which are always going to be off a flat tee box. They usually they can use a tee, so it's on the same lie every time. They have usually a relatively big landing area if they're going to use driver, about 60 yards wide, roughly. If not, they probably won't hit driver. And you can become an elite driver of the golf ball by only ever trying to hit one type of shot. Like, you, you don't need to be able to really play it at different heights, different curves. The lie is always the same. If we go to chipping and pitching around the green, it's completely different because then you always have lots of different slopes around the green where the ball can be on a downhill, an uphill, a side hill. It can be in thick rough. It can be on bare dirt. It can be in sand. So the amount of adaption that's needed there and the amount of variation is very different. Yet it's rare that I see kind of coaches or people talk about how that might change things in terms of practice, which is something that I find interesting. It's like, well, with driving, how much variation should I be using in practice when I really only need to get good at one thing and I can be elite or we can all be elite. But if we're trying to get good at something like short game, chipping and pitching, you need to be able to hit every type of shot you can think of because there's so many different places you might have to hit your ball from. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I think that's, you're right. There's definitely, you know, the term we'd use, the the, the variation and the constraints is, is different. Like the, the, the constraints don't change all that much when you're driving uh, versus chip shot. There's a million different things that could be different, right? The lie. Yep. The, the, um, but I, th- I, you know, I, th- I agree with that to a certain extent, but I also think about, you know, what happens when you want to play a fairway wood on a downhill lie, right? Now you're kind of mixing Right, you're you're using a big implement like a driver, right? Your chip shot, your short chip shot. Um, you're still kind of playing golf shots, right? You're still yeah. understanding how to get that golf head square to a ball with different implements. I think you know it, there's a certain simil- similarity there. So I th- I agree. You're right. There are very different kind of dynamics and goals and stuff. But I think um, you I think kind of adding variation and, and, and thinking about kind of the overlap to them, I think could be beneficial as well. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And definitely like where I was going to kind of go next with that is I use the two extremes there, driving and, and short game mm-hmm. and approach play, which you mentioned like a fairway wood, you know, from a kind of downhill lie that's generally somewhere in the middle in that we definitely get different lies and different constraints. We don't get as much as we get in short game, but we definitely get more than we get from driver where we get to, to tee it up. Yeah. So it's almost like somewhere in the middle, maybe a, a good place to go next with this, because this is something that's um, can, definitely. Can I add one thing in there? Yeah. Of course. So, 100%. so part of the, you know, with driving, I like, I like the example of driving. You're right. There's not a lot of variation you actually need in competition, but that to me doesn't mean like that you can't add the variation in practice, right? The variation in practice of teeing the ball up higher, lower, standing further away, you know, having different, trying to shape the ball. Um, that's going to, what that's going to benefit is your ability to adapt to do those online adjustments as compensation. Cause you're, it's almost like overtraining, you know, where we do a really heavy weights, <laughs> like heavier than you're going to use or overspeed training. So I think, or, or if there's suddenly wind, right? You, now you know, and you got to keep the ball low. By messing around in practice with the driver doing weird things, you've learned about how that that control that driver. Even though you might not always need it, you you've learned more about and about the go, golf shot in general. But I think so. I still think the even though the variability is not going to be as strong in the actual competition, I I think it's very valuable in practice. Yeah, yeah. that that's actually where I was going to go next. Yeah. I don't know if you've come across the golf coach Adam Young. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't. I know yeah, him. like. Yeah, it seemed like if you follow Adam's stuff and you follow your stuff, it seems like you guys would definitely talk to each other because he's <laughs> yeah. he's very interested in the type of things you write about. And he would be a big proponent of that. I think the term he gives it is differential practice, mm-hmm. um, where essentially you're practicing. Like, for example, if you're someone who, when they are playing golf, their, let's say their stock driver shot is 
a slight draw. He would be a big proponent of in practice that you know doesn't really matter as such. You should still practice hitting it straight, hitting it with a fade, which is left to right, hitting it high, low. And he'd also be a big proponent of practicing making impact on different locations of the face. Mm -hmm. And some people, when they hear this, it's like, why would I not just practice getting better at the, the one thing that I'm trying to do? And what you're saying here really is that by practicing, or kind of my interpretation of what you went through there would be that for these online compensations, as you term them, by practicing with lots of variation, we learn about ways we can swing and ways we can move that could be really beneficial on days. Well, well, what about when our driving is off mm-hmm. and our, our stock or default shot isn't working? It's like, well, if in practice you've used lots of different intents and tried to hit lots of different shots, it's like, well, I know in practice that when I'm hitting it like that, if I instead feel like I do X or, or adjust this way, that often results in a successful shot with a slightly different style. Maybe that's what I need to try today. With that, yeah, exactly, sort of exactly. The, the the way I like to put it, uh, you know, we sometimes we treat a swing like it's a a glass vase. <laughs> like we get it down and we don't want to mess with it. We want to put it up on the shelf and not touch it. And that's a recipe for having it smash into pieces, right? As soon as I start to struggle on the golf course, what do I do? Like I don't. No, versus you're right. If you do like, like if you're messing around with contacting on different parts of the club, then you understand the relationship between your club movement and the contact point. You can, you could correct. So the term sometimes we use is anti-fragile, right? You're making you, you, so you really need to be able to correct yourself. If, if you're really relying on a coach to come and say, you know, your swing path too high or for everything, you know, how are you ever going to compensate when you're having a bad round and, and things like that? So you're exactly right. I think um, messing or so trying to break stuff in practice makes it stronger <laughs> in competition is the, what, the way I put it sometimes. No, that's fantastic. Yeah. And it, I think it's a really good point there, too, about uh, needing to take ownership yourself mm-hmm. of, you know, being able to to fix on the fly. And obviously, for, for most people, it's going to be a combination of, yes, they're going to need, or especially depending on the level, they're going to need some guidance from an expert coach to, to send them down the right path. But something that I've kind of talked to a lot of good players about and something I've sort of experienced through my own attempts at getting better at golf, there's a huge difference between a coach suggesting something to you and saying why it will work versus you almost feeling it out yourself and internalizing and having a very almost deep understanding of feeling of, of X and Y, if that makes sense. Like the, the ability to almost like there's, there's things that you can do in your swing or feelings that you can have that if you try to explain them to someone else or write them down, it wouldn't make any sense. There's, there's no, there's no real way of putting it on paper, but it's like, but it's there. It's like, no, no, mm-hmm. like this is what I need to feel. Does, does that make sense? And it's almost like those things are so crucial, I think, to then being able to use it on a golf course, use it when you're under a little bit of pressure or when you're nervous or when things are going wrong, you have something to revert back to. It's very hard to revert back to something that has been explained to you, but you haven't really gone deep on internalizing and feeling very strongly. Yeah, 100%, 100%. You just big difference between you experiencing it and you know the term we use is self-organization your body's moving together and figuring out how to do this versus someone saying oh you need to keep your shoulders back like that it's a totally different language almost so coaches are good at you know describing movement and identifying issues but that is completely different than actually moving right you need to experience that yourself so yeah you, yeah you put it very well there okay yeah. um so <clears throat> I think a lot of people listening to this podcast are aware of the importance of, let's say, skill development and that they've kind of already, you know, broken down the barrier of the idea that there's a perfect swing model, which might have been more popular sort of years ago, especially when 
video cameras first came out, which we can touch on a, a little bit mm-hmm. later because that definitely changed the golf industry. Um, but certainly, like I believe and I, I have kind of more faith in this because of what I see the best players in the world doing, I think there is definitely room for trying to refine, let's say, our basic, our stock movement pattern. I know that's something that you've kind of maybe said isn't super important, but for people who have, you know, almost identified that they need to have, I would, I'll, sorry, I'll start that again. I've gone a little bit off there. I think people come to a realization that their best golf shots or their best golf on any given day isn't good enough to bring them to their goals. Mm-hmm. And it's almost like, okay, we, we need to have a change in the mechanics, the, the I would say like more gross and, and big mechanics that are going on here to give us a chance of getting to the level we want to go to. And that's where this, you know, changing movement patterns in a bigger sense becomes important. And when people go to do that, one of the ways that they try and do it is often practicing the new movement or the new feelings at a reduced speed to what they would do in the sport. So there's slow motion swings or at least much slower than a full swing. So kind of my question is, I went a long way around in that, how does practicing a movement pattern at a speed and force output that is very different to the real thing help us? Yeah, that's a good question. So, you know, t- so yes, uh, you know, I agree with you kind of the, the 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 central premise, you know, as learners, we're very efficient. Well, we'll we'll find a solution that just works well enough, right? So, when I'm first playing golf, I I might settle into a driving a swing that will get the ball 200 yards down the fairway and keep it straight so I can play and go. But at a certain mm-hmm. point, you're right. I'm not going to be satisfied with that anymore. <laughs> I want to mo- change my movement pattern and and get out of there and try something different. So I would say that, you know, the first point is, you know, if you want to change something about your golf swing, why? You know, are you not hitting it straight? You, the direction, you know, is it distance? So, and then um, why are you not getting there? You know, and I think that's where a real coach can come in, you know, why am I not getting the distance on my drives and not, you're not rotating enough or, or whatever. And then, um, so practicing slow motions for me, I think it's, it has some value, but I'm not a big fan of using a lot of it. I think it has value. I think for getting the feel of some type, some types of position, I think, uh, it can be useful. Um, you know, I've been work talking with someone about archery, right. And, um, to get people into the position to hold a bow and stuff at the, to square, you know, sometimes just describing it, you can't do it. You actually have to move their body into it. So I think slowing things down, um, is, is just, um, you know, I think it can be useful for that. But other than that, I, I think you have to be careful with it because just the, the requirements for producing a fast movement are so different than the slow movement, right? The constraints you have on you, what will work and what won't. Things that will work when you move slowly will not work if when you move quickly, right? They're, your body's just different, it has different um, requirements and things. So so I think slow motion to kind of get a general feel, here's what it feels when you swing steeper, mm-hmm. but then get up, get up to the top speed as quickly as possible. Yeah, I yeah, know. And that's, that's kind of what I think most good coaches would suggest too. It's like, well, at the beginning, you might need to slow this down quite a lot to get an understanding and a feeling for it. And then you're, as soon as possible, trying to ramp it up closer and closer mm-hmm. to real speed. And actually something to add to that, and it's it's something that I would believe in or, or think I've had success with, is usually when players are doing these slower, um, maybe rehearsal swings, they often over-exaggerate the change that they're trying to make happen. So let's just say if they're trying to move something by, let's just say five degrees, they might experience what it feels like to change it 10 or 15 degrees to Mm -hmm. almost overcook the change. Is that something that kind of you would believe in or have experience in to, to try and actually allow people feel different to what their default is? Because often when people try and change a little bit, they might not change at all. Yeah. 
No, no, I definitely think there's a value in the exaggeration, both in terms of what you're trying to achieve, and actually sometimes exaggerating errors is, mm. is an effective way to... But I would do it... I like to do it very differently. Um, I would do it by kind of adding some sort of const- what we call a constraint. So if I want you to do a big follow-through, I put like a pool noodle out and, and have you hit it. On, you have to hit it on your swing. So you're not trying to control a certain angle of something very mechanically. You're, I've given you a new task that's getting the same thing. And I, and I can make it way out there. So it exaggerates it more than I really want in the end. So I would rather have you add something to the, the conditions that gets you kind of the movement you want rather than you trying to consciously, okay, I'm going to add 10 degrees to, to my follow through. Um, that to me doesn't work as well. Like you don't have that kind of control over your body, but if I give you a reason, there's something in your way, <laughs> something you have to hit, then your body will kind of more, that's kind of that feel we were talking about before. So I, uh, yes. So I think exaggerating is good. I would just do it. A li- and then also you don't have to slow it down when you're doing that, right? You can do full speed. Um, if you do, if you're adding some constraint. Yeah, no, that, that makes perfect sense. And just so that the golfers listening can understand that is there's an important difference between let's just call it swing training by trying to internalize maybe feelings of what you're trying to do differently and and do it in a very controlled manner versus setting up like a constraint which will encourage you to move the way you want so a simple example for that maybe if I, i don't want to go too golf deep i'm sure you'll understand the concept of this but one of the most important things for good ball straightening golf is something called low point control so where the swing arc bottoms out and typically in good players it tends to be a little bit further forward and after the ball and with poor players it tends to be a little bit early so they catch the ground first or else they miss the ground and they catch the top of the ball on the way back up and Rather than telling someone we want the low point to be after the ball or I want you to shift your weight forward more, a constraint may be something like you put an alignment rod or some sort of marker on the ground, maybe like a piece of paper or a towel a couple of inches behind the ball, and you tell them, I want you to strike the ball but miss the towel or the piece of paper. Would Mm -hmm. that for sure. sense. Yeah, or some sort of obstacle, right? So, yeah, instead of saying, like, I want you to swing so that your your low point is 10 centimeters <laughs> further, yeah. like, that's really hard for us to do, right? We don't, that's really not the way we control our body. We don't have, like, kind of explicit, you, you, this muscle, you do that. You do. But if you give your body a reason by giving them a new constraint, a new goal. Like you, you, you can't, you, you can't achieve this thing I said, because you're going to hit this up. You're not going to hit the ball. So your body will kind of sort it out on its own, this self-organization idea. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a really important kind of take home point for anyone listening who is trying to, to change their ball striking is if you're doing a lot of maybe swings where you're really trying to control your movement, you're doing it at slow motion Not that those are bad, but if you're not seeing the transfer you'd like to when you're actually trying to hit the ball for real, maybe think about constraints that you could set up in your practice that would allow you swing at full speed or close to full speed, but you'll be incentivized to make more of the movement you want. And if you don't, you'll get feedback about it. So you might end up like hitting a piece of cardboard or hitting a pool noodle or or whatever it may be, if you don't do it the way you want to. Yeah. Does that Exactly. Sense? That, you know, kind of what we're talking about here, sometimes we call the constraints-led approach. And you, you hit on all the, you know, what we wanted is add something that makes what you're doing already not work anymore. Uh, add a constraint, give you, re, give you incentive to try something new, and then give you, add some sort of feedback about whether, you know, if you're headed in the right direction, for sure. I think, I think that's a, a, a really good way to think about it. Um, it's just you know, uh, kind of a different way of thinking about it. Also, you know, I just remember it also has the advantage, you know, there's this long history of uh, research in motor learning on a focus of attention. 
I don't know if you've talked about it before, uh, by Gabby Wolf. And what we know is that when you focus internally on your body, what your elbows do and what your shoulders do, and it, you don't learn as effectively as if you focus on the outside environment with the, the ball, the fairway. And so if one of the benefits you get of a constraint is you get people focusing on that piece of wood or the rod or whatever, rather than what their arm's doing, right? So it, so it kind of has a double advantage that way. Yeah. yeah. So I'm familiar with, with like, not that I've gone through all the research myself by any means, but I, I've heard that a lot, you know, from listening to people like yourself. Um, I can't remember if it was on your podcast I heard this or if it was somewhere else. I have a feeling it was yours, but you can correct me if I'm wrong. And it was a question brought up about that internal versus external kind of focus of attention. And it, it was one of the potential limitations that was brought up about this research. And it was that the internal focuses of attention were rarely specific to each individual in the study and it wasn't given by an expert golf coach. So for example, like if you know you had 20 people in the internal group and they're all told, well, you want to feel like your right elbow stays close to your side on the downswing. Well, that might be a useful cue for like two of them based on what their issues are. But if you'd had, you know, a really good golf instructor there, but they were giving internal cues that were extremely relevant to the player, that might be different. Because we we definitely, I'm not saying that because good players do it, it makes it right. But certainly you do hear expert players talking about, well, I feel my left hip doing this in the downswing. Or I feel like my right shoulder moving like this way rather than that way. Is there any merit to that? Or is it kind of pretty clear cut? We definitely um, want to shift to external. Yeah, no, no, I, that's a fair point. And I, I'm kind of a bit softer on it than some people. You know, I, I don't think we should get rid of all internal cues. And I agree a lot across all the sports I work in. A lot of great coaches use them. Um, I just think we can benefit sometimes by adding and moving some of them more external, um, you know, um, instead of if you're trying to get someone like a certain swing path, um, using like an analogy, like imagine you're casting a fishing line, it, I think can add and be beneficial rather than describing what your elbow is doing yeah. and things. So, so yeah, I, I think, you know, maybe it's a bit overdone that you can't use any of them. Um, also, part of it is, you know, when do you use them? You know, after the fact, describing your shot and what you thought you did versus what you're thinking about in the moment, I think is, is different. But yeah, I agree with you. I don't think we have to get rid of all of it for sure. Yeah. Do you think it's, I know this might be kind of hard to prove or not. Do you think it, it may be a case of some people do better with internal cues than others, maybe based on their their backgrounds, you know, what they've done in the past in terms of other sports or maybe other training and things like that or is that kind of maybe a bit too grave an area to try and give a clear answer to yeah i think there's um you know there's some research showing that you know experts can handle internal cues differently than novice you know when you place them and so yeah, yeah so i think yes I, I agree with that also i think cues are just so how people interpret a cue i think is so variable when I say, you know, rotate, keep your shoulder in, what that means to me versus you <laughs> is very, you know, I, I've had some athletes where you use a cue that w gets the movement I want, but makes no sense. <laughs> like I say, swing down at the ball when they're swinging up, but yeah. got the movement I want. So I think part of it is the, how people interpret and what kind of movement it elicits varies. I think you're right from person to person a lot. Okay. That's brilliant. Yeah. So Something that I'd like to touch on now um, is feedback in, mm -hmm. in practice and feedback in training. And also maybe how constraints that we've touched on, which incentivize you to do something, are different to training aids, which help you do something. Mm -hmm. uh, so the first one in terms of feedback, there's there's two big ones in, in golf that people use a lot or definitely coach if you go for lessons to coaches they use a lot one would be launch monitors which mm -hmm. i'm sure you probably have mm -hmm. some familiarity with mm -hmm. and the other would be 
slow motion video. Um, can you maybe get into why having some some sort of feedback is very important and also how some people maybe get tied to feedback too much and how that can be problematic when we then try and go and, and compete in an environment where obviously we, we don't have those pieces of feedback, i.e. on a golf course versus a swing studio or a driving range. Yeah, no, I, that's a good, a good point. There's, there's kind of, a, with feedback, there's kind of, in the motor learning literature, we kind of distinguish two types of feedback. Intrinsic feedback you get yourself from your own senses, right? So if I swung a golf club and you sh- could close my eyes, I could tell you, a good golfer could tell you how well they hit it, whether they put it in the air, you know, that's in tr- based on the feel, the tactile, proprioceptive, sound, vision of the ball flying off. And then there's extrinsic coming from the outside, which all the things I can't get myself, the la- the blast monitor, the speed in miles per hour, the launch angle and degrees. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a really um, kind of consistent finding in the motor learner literature that extrinsic feedback is good, but too much is is dangerous because you want to be able to feel yourself, you be able to feel, uh, get feedback yourself about your swing. And you want to be tuned into those feelings that impact, the sound that impact, the vision, right? And you won't get tuned into those if you're constantly getting it from the outside. There's no real reason. If you're getting feedback about your, your quality of your swing from some machine, um, there, you, you people tend to tune out that stuff, and yep. that's not a good thing, right? So, yeah, using some of it um, is good, but not too much. Um, and one one rule that kind of works, it, it, kind of interesting, is if you let people ask for when they want it, versus giving that to you. So you really don't want to do it on every swing for sure. Um, you want to kind of use it a bit sparingly, but it is useful information for sure. Yeah, like would maybe a good way of using it being seeing if we can match up what we think happened versus what actually did happen with the objective feedback like so for example like i'll give a a really classic example in golf and this is something i've been working on myself so it's easy to explain so people who let's just say slice the golf ball too much often tend to have a path that is very much across the ball they're going from out to in And if you tell someone we need that path to be slightly more neutral, they may think that they've changed, but they haven't at all. So it's Mm -hmm. nice to be able to say to them, look, your first one was seven degrees out to in, for example, on the launch monitor. They don't need to know that it's seven degrees, but you need to be able to say, look, I want you to, we need this to get back closer to neutral. So let's see how far you can make this one maybe go in the opposite from in to out or swing to the right. And they'll say, okay, yeah, I'll do it on this one. And they might change it to like six or it doesn't Mm -hmm. change at all. But then after a while, they might be like, okay, I think I actually know what I need need to do now. And it's like, yeah, that one was actually much closer to neutral. And over time, it gets to a point where I know that this feeling tends to correlate more with the neutral that I'm looking for. And it's not that they need to learn off the degrees, but they need to be able to tell when I feel like this, I know that I'm roughly in this ballpark. But if their feeling is completely different to what's actually happening objectively, they're they're never going to get to the point they want. Would that make sense? For sure. Yeah, that's something we've actually done in research. I think that's a great exercise where you get people, you know, or you could give them a swing and you, you, you do two swings. Was your path more inside or outside on the, this one than the last one? And then you give them the launch monitor feedback and say, yep, you're right. You're wrong. Um, but yeah, I think that's, that's a very useful way to do it. You're kind of using it to get them to try something different. So, you know, a key element of all of this, I think, you know, is we're giving people problems, but we're not giving them a solution, right? So you're not telling them how to get Mm-hmm. straighter's path or get less inside you're giving them feedback where they can explore and figure it out themselves which is really what we want so yeah i think that's a very effective way to use it um you know and getting them to, to get the feel of how to correct it i think i think that's a great for sure yeah um kind of maybe going a little bit more into say like the 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 brain or kind of neural side of this like i'm i'm 
I'm guessing that one of the things that's important for learning and improvement is that when we're doing these types of activities you're describing, when there's a very set task that's that's maybe challenging for us to do, or if we're maybe having like some sort of game there where it's like, well, did I achieve what I was trying to achieve and checking the feedback afterwards is very different to what a lot of people have tried to do in the past for improvement is simply repetition. They think, well, I've done 50,000 swings this way over the last 20 years. The only way I can change is by doing more and more and more and more of X. Does that make sense? Like when when there's a high, like the, the brain will tend to get disinterested and almost switch off when it doesn't have these like mini challenges to keep us engaged. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, it's, We've got the idea of repetition through repetition, right? The way you repeat a successful outcome is by repeating the movement exactly. You know, um, there's a quote, uh, I think it's Rick Shuttleworth, one of my favorite quotes. Learning movement skills is not a process of repeating a solution. It's repeating the process of finding a solution, right? So the, the reason that strict repetition doesn't work and, we, you know, we kind of downplay that doing the same drive over and over and over is because the conditions are changing, right? In the real, you know, the winds up or a different course or, you know, so we want, so we kind of want to move away from that. And, and I think, yeah, it is way more motivating to give an uh, athlete problems <laughs> and challenges rather than let's hit the same tee shot a hundred times. Yeah, uh, for sure. I think that's motivating. The other thing I think, I, I say this with a lot of different sports, golf's not so much that you have to do this, but, Learning is about making mistakes, right? And messing around. You're not going to look good sometimes. And uh, you kind of have to accept that. I want you to try this weird, different constraint with your swing. You might miss the ball completely a few times and look terrible. There's not a scout out there, right? You don't have to. If everything looks good in practice, that's performing. That's not learning. So so I, that's the thing. I think we have to set the expectation with athletes we work with. That we expect you, this, you, this is going to be hard. You're going to fail <laughs> a few times. You're going to really struggle, but it's, that's when you learn. Yeah. That, that, that question is actually one I was going to ask in just a couple of minutes, the difference between performance um, and learning in, in practice and training and transfer to the real thing. I just want to, before we go there, ask you about training aids. Um, so often they are something that, makes the desired movement easier to do and people may think that well the more i do with this training aid attached the more ingrained the correct movement will be is there maybe like i'm i'm sure based on what we've talked about so far the idea would be okay if you can't do the movement you're really struggling with it and the training aid allows you to feel what it should be like once you have that feeling and once you can do it with the training aid, you should be moving away from it as quickly as possible rather than getting attached to it. Would that? Yeah, that for sure. There's, there's very little research showing that getting you to follow a path, like the, like the most extreme example is the robo golf mm-hmm. thing, right? Where you hold a robot arm, holds the club, club and guides you through the perfect swing path. There's really little, very little evidence at all that, that, transfers at all you that you you keep that um but if you do use that yeah definitely you want to get away from it i think more valuable is adding some sort of swing aid that adds some new constraint or exaggerate something like using a flexible shaft club right that's going to give you more information and and gives you a new problem to solve is better than one that's trying to make you have this um perfect swing yeah, yeah. For sure. or m- maybe even some like a, a constraint or, or some sort of element that almost pushes you towards the fault you're working away from. So you need to, to work harder to correct that. For sure. If that makes sense. Yeah. Um, no, that's perfect. Um, just have kind of two, two more main ones. So how does the environment where we train affect transfer to performance in the real event so for example um it's interesting in golf like we because golf courses are are hard to get on and and they can you know playing golf takes a lot of time 
most golf practice happens either in you know a training room with a simulator or on the driving range and when we're working on things you know we if we're hitting into a net and we're seeing the ball fly on a simulator that's one thing and then on a driving range we might aim for a tree or a telegraph pole in the background and then we go out and think things might feel great things might feel good then we go out in a golf course and all of a sudden there's ob stakes to the right and there's a left to right wind and we're like that movement or that swing that i was practicing yesterday that felt so good after i hit 30 of them in a row on the simulator does not feel like i can i can do it today can you maybe talk about the importance basically of how the environment where we train and practice might be very important for transfer of skills yeah, that, that's a great point. I think it's very easy in golf and other sports to start practicing swinging, then playing golf. Mm-hmm. You know, we're try practicing perfect, making this perfect movement rather than this functional movement that's trying to achieve a goal of getting the ball in the hole. So, yeah, I think there's a couple of things. I think the other thing we were talking about training aids, the, the, the dangerous thing with that is video, using video yourself. Yeah. <laughs> a, a video yourself, I think, can be dangerous. But but anyway, I, so I think there are a couple of things. One is, you know, I think having intent when you practice. What am I working on? Am I working on keeping the ball low, working on distance, have a purpose rather than just hitting the ball um, is really and vary that. I think it is. Let's practice. Pretend it's windy. It's a mm-hmm. crosswind. Let's, you know, where would I do then? And then I think you can to compensate kind of for the lack of variation in, in the environment you're training and you can add some of it. The one we talked about before, you know, teeing the ball at different heights, using different stances yeah. just to mess around with it. But yeah, the, the environment is really important because as I say, it, it can kind of break it. You know, the, in my podcast, I always end with the phrase, keep them coupled, right? Yeah. Our movements are driven by the environment, information from the environment, and they have to be together. Like the, you want them together. Right. And when we have a really limited environment, and I recognize you have to train in that sometimes, but I think you can play these kind of games with yourself to get around yeah, some of that. For sure. Yeah. And sometimes there is, there, I think there is merit in, like we touched on earlier, you may want to remove sort of all the consequences if there is a basic movement that you're trying to work on, like that you've identified, I need to upgrade my basic movement here, or I can't get to sort of my goals basically like if you have someone who's driving the ball 210 yards and their goal is well i want to be a three handicap they're probably going to need to do something that allows the move in a way that sends their golf ball further as such and that might require some movement training that doesn't have an outcome as such um you, for sure there 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 can and also there can be like we you can overload with variability, right? You know, you, you can there can be too much. If you want, if you're trying to practice, you you know, you don't want to throw everything at someone. <laughs> Wind and you you know, if you're trying, to, you want to kind of, especially for a, a newer player. Yeah. yeah, and I think it's important that that like st- talking about the environment. I think this isn't probably rocket science for anyone who who plays a lot of golf, and and definitely good players would talk about this. But there's no doubt that they're is certain types of golf holes or golf shots make certain players uncomfortable. Like if someone's mm-hmm. tendency is, let's just say, under pressure when or when they're a little bit nervous, like they know that it's likely, let's say, a left miss tends to pop up. For whatever reason, when they get a little bit nervous, they tend to close the club face a little bit more. I think there's something too, like they're going to have to experience playing those types of golf holes when it matters like successfully is very very hard to replicate not on the golf course basically you yeah. you have you have to get experience with with all the environmental things all the emotional things that are tied up like it's it's all wrapped up together is that kind of something sure. that we see yeah. bear out in the research yeah for sure the you know sometimes we call it hot versus cold practice um you know in in terms of emotions you know there's no consequences there's no you're right it's all wrapped up in that um one of the things i would say you know made me think is the biggest thing a message i try to give to a lot of people is have a purpose in your each practice session like don't just go and hit 50 drives what do you want to work on do you want to work on 
getting the you want to work on distance and just try to drive the crap out of it and don't worry about keeping it straight. You do want to work on getting the ball in the air more. Like have a purpose for each session rather than just hitting 50 balls. Right? That's not a purpose. Um, that's the biggest thing I, I, I say as a consultant, half the time, all I do is just ask why, <laughs> why are you doing this practice activity? What do you hope to achieve? And, and getting people to think through that, I think is really valuable. Okay, perfect. Yeah. I just have two more, Rob. I'll try not keep you too much longer. You touched on the difference between performance in practice versus learning in practice. And definitely in golf, people tend to think there's a direct correlation between how well they strike the ball and how successful their shots are in training and practice and how they'll do on the golf course. Whereas I, I think what you'd suggest and some others would say, well, hold on a second. The goal in practice is to develop our skills, which might mean trying things that lead to unsuccessful shot outcomes or maybe trying things that are slightly above our current comfort or skill level. And I think a lot of people get wrapped up in trying to almost get like a, a blanket around them or are feeling like they're doing great in practice and that will transfer to the course. But the course is often like messy. We we don't feel so good. Can you touch on that a little bit? Yeah, for sure. I think you need kind of a balance. Actually, I think, you know, the term you use is periodizing training, just like you do with weights or running or whatever. You know, you... When you're trying to to work on something, you really want to have it a lot of chaos and kind of pushing yourself and challenging yourself, making mistakes. Um, right before the before a tournament, you probably don't want to be doing that. Right, that's when you want to perform. You want to reduce the complexity, the the variations, so you can get a good feel, feel confident. So I think there's room for both types of practice. It's just when you do too much of, you know, the performing, um, you're not going to you get better unless you challenge yourself and you make yourself make mistakes. So I think it's a, it's a good balance of that. Right. Um, but definitely if, if you want to, um, I, I think you need to, to get about a good balance and, and there's room for the really simple, almost repetitive practices yeah. when, if you're just, it's about making you confident and feel pressure, you know, handle pressure and things like that. Okay. Brilliant. Last one. Um, then Robin, I leave you go. The yips is a term that's commonly used in golf and in baseball. In golf, it can happen any part of the game, really. Can you maybe dig into, I guess, your opinion, coupled with maybe what the research says about what's actually going on when somebody starts to really, really, really struggle to carry out a task that was one time pretty routine, I think. Yeah. So yeah, that's it. That's it. It's, I've been kind of fascinated by this and you know, I, there's kind of a, I don't know if it's a continuum or something that, that we're choking under pressure where you just, you know, miss a putt you should make t- to win and the yips, which is more of a kind of a prolonged thing. The basic explanation for it is that we kind of, most people accept is that, these things happen when you try to turn, you turn your attention inwards, you get that internal. So when the stakes get really high, you're trying to make sure you do everything, keep your head down, keep your feet, you know, keep my arm in all those kind of cues and coaching restrictions you're, you're thinking about, you're bringing back in and it's messing up. I think it was in the masters. I think recently the, the guy that was in the lead, he did the worst <laughs> drives I've ever seen on the one of the majors. Oh, year, that right? was that was Mito Pereira in the PGA yeah. Championship. He, yeah, yeah, he hit a really, really. It was. It wasn't just that it was a bad drive. It was an extremely strange swing it and was. an extremely strange shot. It was totally unprofessional. It was something you would see like at Top Golf, yeah. right? Right. It was very unprofessional. Nothing like any professional doing. Like the common explanation for that is he was thinking about all the mechanics of the swing and he just messed it all up. Um, and so that's kind of the general explanation for pressure. Yip seems to be something even more where you get like muscle tension. You get something there, but um, the biggest thing, you know, I've kind of done is I, I like to use pressure in training 
Um, it doesn't have to be the same kind of pressure like money for winning a putt, but um, doing kind of the consequences in training, I think gets people, you want to get people resisting this urge to overfocus. You want to just let it go, right? Trust your body <laughs> to self-organize when you when it matters the most, not try to over-control things. So I think you can do that to a certain degree in practice by doing kind of pressure training. Yeah, and sometimes like this is kind of a, a question that would be brought up in golf a lot. And one of the reasons I'm so interested in it is like I went through the yip mm-hmm. cycle myself um for like a few years with with short game, chipping, wedge shots, like playing to a level that was completely different to what I would have in the past, like really, really struggling. And it was one of the reasons I actually got interested in your podcast too because as i dug into some of the research stuff on it and you were you know talking about stuff that was similar and the question that's often brought up is like the performance anxiety versus people using a a technique or mechanics that makes a successful shot outcome very unlikely and it's almost Mm -hmm. the balance of these two it's like well did you start hitting terrible shots because you started using a technique that makes successful shot outcome very, very difficult? And after you do that a certain amount of times, well, of course, anxiety builds up because you have memories and scar tissue of what's just happened. Or is it you get anxious over one of these shots, you hit a bad one, and, and that's sort of how it starts. Would you have any info on or thoughts on like how those two things kind of combine? Because some coaches... It's almost like if you ask a, you know, a sports psychologist, they'll dig into these things you were talking about. Like mm-hmm. you get internal, you, you, you know, get muscle tension. You need to focus on, you know, seeing the shot, mm-hmm. forget about all these technical things. Imagine you were throwing a ball to the target. And then sometimes you will see a, like a golf instructor who wouldn't have as much background in that. They have more of a, like, let's say cause and effect from a mechanics background. And they're like, well, I'm not surprised this person is doing X because with these mechanics, it just makes it very, very hard to carry out a successful shot. Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, for sure. I think it goes back to some of the kind of building, building a fragile uh, swing. I think Mm -hmm. if if you build kind of this swing that's based on, you have to repeat the same movements rather than having those compensations and variability begin. You're setting yourself up. Your margin for error is so small. Uh, as an example, we did a bunch of studies on puttering a long time ago where we found different ways kind of putters control their putting stroke for different distances. And one of the things we found was lesser skilled kind of varying the speed of the, the club head rather than using a longer stroke. Mm. And what we found is that that speed strategy is so sensitive, right? You're a little bit off in it. So you, you basically, I think you can learn in a way that's really not good. It doesn't have a large margin for error. And I think that's what you're kind of getting at. You're, you're a little bit off and it's going to fall apart versus if you learn this adaptability compensation variability strategy i think it makes you much more resilient uh, under pressure because it's going to throw everybody off a little bit i think in in some ways but um i think if you can adjust and adapt it makes you stronger yeah i know i think that's a, a a perfect way of of um describing how good technique probably isn't the right term maybe a more functional technique or a technique that has it means that if you don't quite um perform exactly how you want like you said, there's more margin of error. There's still a good chance of a successful shout outcome. Whereas there are certain ways that you may learn. And if you're slightly off, the, the result is disastrous. Yeah, a good example is basketball, free throw shooting. Right? If you do a low light angle to the rim, you can make a shot, but you have to get everything perfect. <laughs> yep. You have to get the speed and everything like she- versus if you shoot like Stephen Curry, where you have a big... Like you have so much more margin for error in the release point and the angle. You can have variation and you'll still get it in. So there are more, there are solutions that maybe both work, but one allows for a lot more variability in margin for error. Yeah. So your kind of your technique and your mechanics are the system you use to carry out the task needs to be at a reasonable level to give you a decent margin for error. But then within that, there's lots of room to explore different ways of doing it and, and get used to how you can make yeah. adjustments on the fly 
as opposed to almost trying to be fit into to one box. This is how it has to work. Yeah, and I think like a golf example, like if you're all arms in your swing, you're just you're just not leaving yourself much to compensate yeah. <laughs> and adjust for for if something's a little bit off, right? So yeah, for sure. I think there's ways. To, so there's again, that's different movement solutions might work, but there's ones that are going to be a bit more resilient. Okay, that's brilliant. Rob, that was really enjoyable. I enjoyed the information that hour absolutely flew. Uh, <laughs> yes, for me. Just before we wrap up, can you let people know where they can find out more about you? And again, let us know about your podcast, your book, and kind of anything else you do where, where people can learn more from you. Yeah, so the best place is just to go to perceptionaction.com. Um, that website has all the podcast and uh, some resources I have, for example, like the constraints-led approach and and things like that. And um, the, all the podcast episodes, Perception Action Podcast, kind of weekly. Um, and then the book is called How We Learn to Move. And it explores all these kind of basic ideas of repetition without repetition, why variability is good, uh, what an attractor is and things like how, why it's difficult to change the movement solutions in there. Um, and that one you can find, there's links on that website or you just find it on Amazon. Okay, fantastic. Um, and you're on Twitter too? Yes. Give us- um, my weird Twitter handle is shaky weights, okay. but you can find all that uh, as well on my social media and perceptionaction.com. Okay, perfect. And I'll put it in the show yeah. notes as well. Um, yeah, Rob, that was fantastic. Thank you very much for your time. And uh, don't be surprised. My play. Don't be surprised if you get uh, a few questions from followers on Twitter. <laughs> I bet. Yes, golf uh, golfers are the most enthusiastic, I find, about <laughs> agreeing and disagreeing with <laughs> what I say. So, yeah. Yeah, enthusiastic is one word. Some, yes. some would say maybe, <laughs> maybe slightly insane. Yeah. So. Thank, thanks a lot, Rob. I appreciate it. My pleasure. That is all for this episode. If you enjoy these podcasts and would like to help me grow the listener base, please share the link with your golf buddies and leave a rating and review.